I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. This is She Said, She Said. decades, Vital Voices has worked with thousands of women from more than 184 countries and territories to help them develop as leaders and entrepreneurs. But perhaps most interesting, these women make up a significant network who are at the forefront of global progress and innovation around the world. Our special guest today is my friend Elise Nelson. She is the CEO of Vital Voices. She's leading a model that is often referred to as collaboration in action, where she brings together corporate, nonprofit, and governmental partnerships to support these women and the impact that they're having in their communities. Elise, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Well, I am delighted. I've been looking so forward to this conversation. Vital Voices is an amazing organization, but for those who may not know, how do you describe Vital Voices? What I often say is we invest in women to improve the world, right? That's our motto, our mantra. Um, But really what we do is we search the world for women who have a daring vision for change. And then we invest in them through training, mentoring, and network of their peers, financial support, visibility, credibility for their work to really help them take that daring vision to scale. Um, we support women over long periods of time. Quite frankly, that is, that's really different. Um, I think we're really turning traditional philanthropy on its head. Traditional philanthropy, as you know, is very much about really a mile wide and an inch deep, touch as many heads as you possibly can. And what we believe is that by going deep over a long period of time, so we support women over decades Mm -hmm. sometimes, um, and really getting deeply into what it is that they need, so it's a real bespoke approach, that's where you're going to have real impact. We also, I think a lot of people think of us as, okay, you're a global organization solving global challenges. And although that's true, Really, we're about local leadership. We're about women who saw a wrong in their community, whether it's human trafficking or the lack of girls' education, and they experienced it in some way, maybe not directly, but probably indirectly, or something in them pulled at them. But they had that direct experience. We find that so often with women leaders. And they decided, well, I'm going to step up and I'm going to right that wrong. And I think that's the power of what we do around the world. It's about women changing what they know. And that's the most powerful, you know, method, most effective method of change. Mm -hmm. Give me an example of someone who has been part of the Vital Voices Network, maybe since the beginning, and the different ways in which you've supported her. Maybe talk a little bit about her story. Oh, wow. We've done some great case studies. You have a lot. Um, Yeah, there's so many (laughs) different different women I could tell you about. Um, One woman just I'm thinking of off the top of my head, uh, because we're going to be working with her really soon in the next year on another project, um, is a woman named Panmela Castro from Brazil. She is a graffiti artist. And I had heard about her from a friend of mine. And he said, you've got to go down to Brazil at some point. Next time you're there, you've got to look this woman up. 
So she didn't speak in English. She only speaks Portuguese. I go down and I, through my somewhat a little bit of Spanish and her a little bit of Spanish, we communicate. She takes me around to see her graffiti art. What's so amazing about her is that many years later, she finally told me this story, but I knew there had to be a personal experience there. She said, you know, I never knew that domestic violence is a crime in my country. But sure enough, in 2006, there was a law created on the books called the Maria de Pena Law. And it was after this woman who basically was shot in the spine by her husband, became paralyzed. You know, she survived, you know, to his misfortune. And she took him to court and then won. And then they got this law in the books that says the domestic violence is a crime. That's not that long ago, 2006. right? 2006. So I was there in 2009 seeing her, her graffiti and, and she... Over, over time, as we got to know each other, she said, you know, I, too, was a victim of domestic violence. But I didn't know that it was wrong because there was no word for domestic violence back then. Culturally, it was acceptable that you could beat your wife. You owned your wife, that machismo culture that exists. So she decided, okay, I'm going to do the only thing I know. One, I'm going to leave this, you know, violent marriage. She got married very young. She didn't have much, but she left. And she said, then I'm going to start doing my art, but I'm going to use my art to tell my story. But I'm not going to tell people it's my story because I believe it's many other women's stories. So her art, you know, the graffiti art, it's not tagging the way we might think of graffiti here. It's really these incredible murals. And she uses the murals to really tell people it's wrong to beat a woman. This is against the law. And I think what she's done is she's brought a law that, quite frankly, is only effective if it's taken from the piece of paper into reality, Mm -hmm. she's taken it and she's made it pop culture, Mm. you know? And so she's used culture in a way to shift culture. So when I met her, I immediately saw this. But I had to convince her that she was a leader. She's like, I'm not a leader. I'm just a girl doing graffiti in the street. Mm. I'm like, no, but you are changing the cultural, you know, norm, the paradigm. I mean, you are creating this really powerful tool that people could use all over the world. So I think the first thing we did with her is really just convince her that she was a leader. And that took a little bit of time. I mean, she tells a really funny story about, like, who's this gringo telling me I'm a leader? (laughs) I'm just, you know, doing my graffiti and my spray paint, you know. Anyway, but she's one of the most, you know, renowned um, social activist graffiti artists, and she travels all over the world. Um, We've, she actually, like you, who I know is a global ambassador with Vital Voices, she also had the experience of being mentored uh, by Rena DeSesto, who's at Bank of America leading all of their arts and culture work. Mm -hmm. And she was her mentor. And she said, you know, you've got to start charging companies for this, you know, so that you can bring revenue into your nonprofit. She's like, really? It could be a business? You know, so she's, she's constantly bringing that in. So it obviously takes people who are who want to continuously learn. Um, But she's participated in probably four or five different Vital Voices training programs over the years. Everything from that sort of business acumen and strategic planning to public speaking training. She now speaks fluent English. That she did on her own. We've given her a lot of visibility. Um, She was honored by Dimebaum Furstenberg with her DVF award. She's been honored by us. Um, and, you know, I, I think she's really seen as a, as, a, as a leader around the world. And that's what we're trying to do. Ultimately, we measure our progress in four core areas. Did she set out to achieve the vision that, you know, she set for herself, right? 
Did she create cultural change in the process? Meaning, do people think about women and women's leadership differently? Do women think differently about themselves, right? Because that's also cultural change that Mm -hmm. needs to happen. Three, is she seen as a global leader in her industry? So not just, oh, I do my project, you know, and I can come talk about my project, but her project is a great example that can be shared around the world and replicated by other people, not just her, right? Um, And we see other people investing. And that's one of the things we want to see. I mean, we're almost like venture capitalists. We think of ourselves more as venture catalysts (laughs) because we're finding those great leaders, investing in them, but bringing other people along to invest. And we do measure that. And then finally, is she paying it forward in her community and beyond? So we look at how is she giving back to the Vital Voices community of other women leaders? And one of the things that Pan Mella does every year with Vital Voices is she mentors our Her Lead fellows and her lead is a program for American high school girls. Oh wow. So here it's like totally full circle. Yeah. 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 Oh that's amazing. Okay, let's talk a bit about this notion of mentorship, which really runs as a thread through all of your programs. The Global Ambassadors Program that you mentioned that I was very privileged to participate in a few years ago is a great example of this. Talk about how that program works Mm -hmm. and what makes it so unique and special. Yeah, well, first off, I'd say I think the the secret sauce there is a woman named Zoe Dean Smith, (laughs) who's really built the program out. Who works on your team. Yes, who works on my team. She's amazing. I mean, we're, we're blessed to have an amazing team of entrepreneurs, quite frankly. I mean, people who want to create and develop and learn and make it better and better. And that's what she's done with that program. And it's a partnership with Bank of America. And, and you know, you think about Bank of America as a huge institution, but we are aligned with we believe that women leaders can change the world. We both believe that. Anne Finucane, who really was the, the great champion and partner in putting this program together, senior most woman at Bank of America, vice chair now. So that program really brings a small group, quite frankly, again, going back to that, let's not scale wide, let's scale deep, a small group, 10 or 12 mentees. We send out applications. Right now we have applications for an upcoming program in Puerto Rico. And women really have to apply. And we are really looking for not just the person who's got the great organization or company that they want to scale, and they need that input, that support, that strategy, you know, to take it to the next level. But we're also looking for people who are ready because really good mentors are not just people who are ready to like lift you up, but there are people who are also going to tell you where, you know, you're falling down and, and when you fall down. And those are the good mentors. And that's what we're trying to build is that authentic, real mentorship um, across the globe. And so it's a, it's a week-long program. In a particular community, we've got 10 or 12 mentees, 10 or 12 global ambassadors. And these are women really at the top of their field, women like you, women who've achieved more than they probably ever thought they'd achieve. And they're looking at how they can give back. And they don't just want to write a check. They want to be impactful, but maybe not just in their own backyard. They can do things easily in their community, at their children's schools. But they also want to have that global reach and impact. And there is something so special about women coming together with each other, right? And so I think that bond over a week of the mentors and the mentees coming together around an agenda of strategic planning, communications training, public speaking training, um, I think that really provides an incredible, not just network and support for the mentees, but I think also for the mentors. I think Mm -hmm. they get more out of it um, than they probably thought 
they they would because they're sort of coming thinking, well, I'm coming to give, and there's a get as well. And I think that's what keeps people bonded to their mentees and mentors. But, you know, at the end of the day, you can't force any relationship. When you're linking up a mentor and a mentee, you don't know, is this going to work or is it not, right? So you just have to have to see. Uh, we do our very best, and I, I think that, that Zoe does a great job of making all those connections happen. Yeah, it, it is a... Certainly a component of the secret sauce in matching people up in a way that works, even though it may not be completely obvious to them at the first meeting. That was certainly true in my case, and it ended up being a perfect match. Oh, good. First, (laughs) I think we both thought, you know, what do we have in common? What are we going to be able to share with each other that really is going to be meaningful and impactful? Mm. And it is revealed over the course of that period of time, which is pretty incredible. Any insights that you can share into how Zoe makes those matches and makes them successful? I think one of the things that makes them successful is all the mentees have that, I want to learn. I want to learn. I'm ready. I'm open. And all of the mentors come with that. I want to give. And I'm open. I'm open for whatever this, wherever this takes me. And I think that openness, that willingness to sort of give and pay it forward is really what creates a magical relationship. So it doesn't have to be across the same industry. I can't say every match has always been perfect, but it's pretty darn close. I mean, she she is quite good at it. One of the topics we talk about on the podcast a good bit is around feedback and how important and critical it is, but how difficult it can be oftentimes for women to hear because we do hold ourselves up to such a high standard. Yeah. Any perspective on how to think about feedback and how to teach yourself to really use it in the spirit in which it's intended, and also be able to distill good feedback from not so good feedback, right? Not everybody that gives you feedback is necessarily going to be giving you feedback that's in your best interest. And I think this question is so interesting. I get this question, especially from young women, a lot. How do you know if it's good feedback? Yeah. Well, your gut is more important than you than you are ever going to give it credit for. Every time I haven't gone with my gut, it's been the wrong decision, right? So that that's very important in weighing feedback. But, you know, over the years, I have certainly learned the, the critical role of feedback and that it is a gift, actually. Um, and so even if it, it hurts or stings, let's say, at the time, you need to take it in and unpack it, um, not get emotional about it. I think for me... I wouldn't be in my position if I didn't learn very quickly how to take feedback. So um, I've been with Vital Voices since its founding. Um, I was in the government when we began and then took it out of the government. I was the first employee creating it as a nonprofit. But I wasn't the CEO, right? It was always someone of my mother's generation who I really looked up to and admired who was the CEO. And so I ran the programs, and I ran all around the world, and I got to know women, and I, I, I loved what I did. And then one day, Milan Verveer, who was the then chair of the board and, and CEO, said, you know, one day we see you running this. I mean, you are Vital Voices. And I was like, what? You do? <laughs> and she's like, well, of course. Of course. This is your organization. We've just been mentoring and waiting for you to be ready to step into the role. And then when she um, was tapped by Secretary Clinton 
um, at the beginning of 2009 to go in and be the first ever global ambassador for women's issues, she said, this is yours now. And I had at that point become president. So it was now I'm president and CEO. But really not having that buffer of an incredible leader like Milan between me and the board and me and all the partners. I mean, I was doing so much internally with the team and with the women we work with around the world. But not having that buffer, all of a sudden, I realized I need to step back. I need to bring everybody along. The board doesn't totally know me. Actually, they think of me as this like young whippersnapper, you know, (laughs) very passionate, but maybe not like the most strategic. But actually, I am strategic, but they don't know that about me, right? And so I need to show them that I understand the finances and, you know, proving myself again. But at the same time... I had to walk that that line, and I learned this, and it was a it was a hard lesson, right? But I had to walk that line of making sure I showed them what I knew, but never being close to learning more. Because at the same time, I sort of knew like I'm not perfect. I have to. I want to be the best possible CEO for Vital Voices, and quite frankly, I'm still not perfect, right? I mean, mm-hmm. truly. So I think you know, it's I constantly take feedback and. You know, sometimes uh, it can be really hard, you know, and uh, and people will say, well, you know, so-and-so, I heard them saying such-and-such about you. And I'm like, yeah, people always, people are always going to say not very nice things sometimes about the people in charge. Like, that's just going to happen. No one is going to agree with everything I say, but I hope they respect me. You know, that's it, right? They don't have to like me. <laughs> but I do think it's important to listen to that and take it in, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's even if it stings sometimes. Um, because a lot of times, even if you don't need to take it, there's probably a nugget or a kernel of truth in there, right? A, a something you can you can glean from it, right? Yeah. So something you said that I think is so important, and I get this question a lot, I suspect you do as well, it can be difficult when you have grown up in an organization as a young person just starting out, working your way up the food chain to have the people around you think of you as the leader that you aspire to be. And Mm -hmm. that may sound a little bit strange, but you said something interesting. You knew or someone told you, and I want to know the answer to this because I think this is really critical. How did you know what, how, what you needed to illustrate for the board, for funders, for yeah. your for all of the people that were going to be working with Vital Voices, how did you know what types of skills you needed to exhibit in order right. for them to consider you as the potential successor to Milan? Yeah. I think the difference is prior to becoming the CEO, it's head down, working like crazy, you know, doing the work, getting it done. And I think CEO is head up, not looking crazy. You know, as cra- as 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 much as you possibly can. You right. know, I mean, even though you're you are busy, but it's also it, it's a it's a it's a shift in mindset, right? And for me, a lot of things all kind of happened at the same time when I became CEO. That really helped me sort of get out of the busy work, head down, and look at the big picture because you can't you can't manage people, you can't be strategic if you're just if you continue to. To be that person who's just running along. But that can be a big criticism of women in particular, that if I just keep my head down and I work really hard, then they're going to notice me and they're going to promote me, period. Mm. Now, you're you're in a unique, you know, you were in a unique 
uh, situation in that it's an organization mm-hmm. run largely with women, mm-hmm. by women, for women, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You don't, you know, that's a that's typically a model that we talk about in big corporate organizations right. where you have both men and women and all of that. But how did you know how to begin to think more strategically? Like who said to you, hey, you got to get your head up. You've got to illustrate what you can do so that people know. Well, I had a, I, I had a really tough board member who at the time I thought, oh boy, you know, she's hard on me. But now I really thank her because she told me a lot of sort of stinging things um, at the time that now I look back and I think, man, that was such good advice. I mean, so she would say, for example, she'd be like, you need to stop taking phone calls in airports and in taxis. I know you're trying to get as much done, but sometimes I'm on a call with you on a conference call and like people can tell you're running and you don't sound like you're listening. And I was like, no, no, but I'm listening. I'm just trying to, you know. But it's like, who cares what? Who cares? It's how people perceive you, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't really, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't matter, right? That you're, you think you're able to get it all done. You are listening, but you sound like you're not. So I just made a rule. I don't do that anymore, right? I won't, I won't do the calls and taxis and the running through the airport. I mean, if it's an emergency, then I really make sure everybody knows this is where I am. I really apologize. Because otherwise you just sound like you're, you're just crazy and out of control. I mean, so that was one piece of, of feedback she gave me. I mean, she, she really, I think, gave me a lot of advice. Like, you, you need to act like a CEO, right? You can't just be the person who's getting it all done and running as fast as you can and extremely passionate. You have to also be really strategic. So I think you learn that over time. I mean, one of my other lessons, quite frankly, was learning that growth is not necessarily a good thing. Right. So I wanted to grow the organization when I became CEO. So growth, not personal growth, you're talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Organizational growth. Personal yes. growth yes. is so always I'm good. Pretty sure you meant always organizational good, growth. You know, yes. except if it's this way. Anyway. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, but um, but no, I mean it's it's when I took over, I was like, Why are we so small? We should be much bigger. I think we were like twelve staff and I don't know, maybe around two million dollars a year in budget. And I was like, I wanna grow. Like we should be bigger. And so um, we grew really fast. And I hired a lot of senior people to run departments. And they were super smart. And I'm doing everything right. I'm hiring people who are smarter than me. This is great. But really, those people were not down with the culture. Was it their fault? No. It was my fault because when you're really small, when you're like 12 people in an organization, you'll say, oh, that she's so vital voices. Yeah, we should hire her. She's so vital voices. Or we should support that woman. She's so vital voices. And everybody knows what that means, what those values are. Everybody knows. They don't need to be articulated. But when you grow very quickly to like 45 people, as we did, and then we recently had another growth spurt. But you, if you don't articulate those things, if it's not really clear and embedded and everybody's acting upon it and you're hiring and firing around it, you got a problem <laughs> because you're going to build an organization that's not aligned. And that's actually what happened to me. And I had to, I had to reel it back. Um, I had to really get the strategy firm, like what are we really good at? And I had to, you know, jigger things around. And I mean, luckily I think when people know that they're not right, they tend to leave on their own. That was that was probably one of the hardest lessons I had to learn, that mm-hmm. like culture is actually sort of the how we do it is more important than the what we do, right? And how much we can achieve and how fast we can run. It's making sure we're all going together. How do you know the difference between pulling the plug and recalibrating and continuing to double down? How do you know when it's a question of we just haven't given it enough time 
versus we need to pivot? How did you know? For a person no, or for a for strategy? No, for organization. So in the example that mm-hmm. you gave, mm-hmm. in terms of dialing it back and recalibrating the culture so that everybody really got the culture, how did you know whether it was just a matter of giving it more time versus a pivot? It was a big aha moment, one staff retreat we had where there became a very heated discussion and it became very clear that there was a whole group of the organization who felt that we're about development and there was another group who was like, no, no, we're about leadership. Mm, wow. And it's pretty fundamental. As I was like, <laughs> whoa, whoa, okay, this is, wait a minute. I think also, you know, I I saw silos begin to develop where you had departments really kind of like their own organization within an organization. And it's just, you begin to see that and you're like, okay, wait a minute. We no longer need to be like going, we need to pull back. And you know, I had to go to the board and basically say, we might have to shrink to grow. Because we need, one, we need to get the strategy right. Some of the programs we're doing, I don't think are our core capacity. And we did a big strategic overhaul, right? Of like, what are we really good at? Who else is in the space? I mean, when we started as an NGO, there were like four other organizations doing this work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now there's like, you know, 4,000 or more. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot. And so we really need to look at, okay, what's our value add? But also when we were created in 1997, you know, I don't even think Google was around yet. I think they came in 98 or, I mean, right. they probably weren't even mainstream till like 2000. But, right. you know, so it was a very different world. So if we were to be created today, would we be needed? And how would we be different considering that technology is what it is, right? So we really went back to our roots and that really showed us, okay, we are really good at finding extraordinary women and really investing in them and their vision. It is not about our vision for them. So any program that we do where... We don't have an, any control over the applicants is not going to be right because we've, we know how to pick the great leaders, right? So it needs to have that. We also want to make sure that we're not pulling a group of women together and say, hey, everybody, come together and work on a project that you think is important in your community. I mean, if I was asked, do you want to be part of a program that's about you and your vision as a leader? Or would you like to be part of a program where we're pulling a whole bunch of women together in your country and saying, hey, come up with a project to work together on and we'll support it? I mean, it's just like, you know what I mean? I mean, sure, both are interesting, but like we are much better at that first piece around investing in a woman and her vision. At the end of the day, I don't know the situation in Nigeria or Afghanistan or, you know, a rural community in the United States. I don't know. And so you want to find the leader who has been there, experienced it, and has the answer, but needs the support to make that solution a reality. So when this program first started. It started as a program at the State Department under then Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Um, It has now evolved into a nonpartisan NGO that Mm -hmm. you've referenced. Why, from your perspective, is it important to be nonpartisan? Because it's not about politics. You know, it, it's, it is very much about women's leadership, and I think everybody can get behind that. We will speak out about whatever's going on, certainly, because we need to. But we need to be about, really about the issues and about progress and policy before we are about politics. So we tend sometimes not to name names 
because we don't want to get into that. We just want to say this is what we believe, what the women leaders that we work with believe is right. So, I mean, it's just it's just not about politics, you know? I mean, politics in that way, right? I mean, it's certainly about women political leadership around the world and in this country, but it's not about fundamentals like that. Is it difficult to maintain that balance in the current environment? Yeah, it is. And how do you do it? I think it's always putting uh, policy and progress for women above politics, you know. And so it's just, it's, and also it's really trying to stay out of the fray. I mean, one of the things that we really try and do at our Global Leadership Awards event, we want to make it a night in Washington that is like a politically neutral or free zone. Because we feel like, particularly I think right now in Washington, it's like people want to go somewhere where it can be hopeful and we can just talk about, you know, the world and women's progress and not get so much into all these, this, that, the other issue, right? You know, it's hard, I have to say. I mean, it's it's always been hard. I think right now it is more difficult, absolutely. The partisan piece is a very difficult one to navigate. And I think the more conversations we can have about collaboration and being collaborative and finding ways of reaching across the aisle, it just broadens the tent yeah. for women. Well, you know, and I think the two women who ultimately registered Vita Voices as a 501c3, when we were in the government and we were looking at the transition, and the women in our network said, you know, look, you've got to keep this thing going. It's It was not just a conference or a training. It's it's bigger than that. It's a global network of women leaders. We want to stay connected, and we want to have you driving that. Uh, two women, one Republican, one Democrat, Mary Eric, the Republican, and uh, Donna McClarty, the Democrat, came together and registered the NGO. And that was very much by design. I mean, it wasn't saying, oh, you and you. I mean, the two of them were collaborating and involved. So I think, you know, we never thought of it as a place that was about politics we actually don't take on issues of reproductive rights because we think that they can be too divisive. I mean, I think it's a very important issue. Many of the women that we work with may work on that issue, but it's not something that we're taking on head on. Let's talk more about you. You have been involved in women's leadership development since college. Mm -hmm. What was it that attracted you to this work? You know, I think I grew up with a with a mother who is just an absolute badass, if I can say that on your podcast, Laura. Um, you know, she started surfing at age 50, and she led us on adventures all over the world. And she was just this, like, amazing, larger-than-life person. She still and surfs, right? She still does. And she's, she, she's not 80. She's 75. 75. Yeah, yeah. So, but I remember growing up, she would always say to me, that she wanted to be an architect, and she has a master's in math and in art. But she was told by every man, including her own father, that really that wasn't a wise choice because no one's ever going to really hire a woman to design and build a strong structure. So I grew up with that story, but also her saying to me, but things are different now. You can do whatever you want, right? And my dad, same thing, right? But then I think, you know, traveling around the world, I, I began to wonder, is that really the case around the world? I mean, quite frankly, it's not the case anywhere in the world. But when I got to college, I remember I took every single course with the word woman in the title. You know, I just wanted to learn as much as I could about women's rights in this country, 
and also anything I could learn in school at the time about women around the world. And what I found is that there was very little information, you know, not a lot of books you could buy about global, none that you could buy really about global women's issues. You might see a passing article about, you know, honor crimes in Pakistan or acid attacks or, you know, something horrific about the victimization of women around the world. But other than that, it was, there was no real global women's movement. This is before really before the internet, you know, quite frankly. So I heard about something called the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women. It was happening in Beijing, China. Randomly, I heard about it. I was making some calls to figure out if I could get someone from the UN to come and speak at my university. And this woman said, well, are you coming to the Beijing Women's Conference? And I was like, what is that? She says, well, yeah, if you have an NGO. And I was like, what's an NGO? What is an NGO? <laughs> um, you know, you can you can actually come and register. And I thought, well, I'll just make up an NGO. Why not? So I registered, sent off my, you know, application. And you were like 19, 20? I was, I was 21. 20. Yeah, I remember I called my dad. I said, Dad, guess what? I'm going to Beijing to the Women's Conference. He said, Beijing, Texas? You're not going to Beijing, China. <laughs> I don't even know if there's a Beijing, Texas, but... <laughs> But anyway, so um, anyway, I just, you know, I, I managed to, you know, buy the cheapest ticket I could find and took multiple flights to get there and had an incredible experience there. And I realized that there were so many issues that my generation, a up and coming global generation, did not know about. We were going to be this first generation of a global economy, whatever that was at the time. <laughs> And connected to each other, but yet we didn't know so many of the issues we faced. So I realized, you know, I I have a part to play here. And quite frankly, for me, it was when I heard Hillary Clinton's speech. Uh, she spoke in Beijing. I knew it was very difficult for her to get there. Many people didn't want her to go and speak out on human rights issues of women in China. You know, there was not long after the Tiananmen Square crisis. Mm-hmm. And so when I heard her speak, I realized... The only way people will know what happened here and the things that I know are people who listen to that speech. And people will listen to that speech because it'll be on TV, it'll be covered in the news, it will go viral. And it did because there were so many eyes on it because they were worried she wasn't going to do it right and she would just hit the ball out of the park. And I think for me, you know, this 21-year-old trying to find my way in the world, listening to that speech after being surrounded by all these women at that conference, learning about human trafficking and child marriage, all these things I never knew existed. No one knew at that time. These, this was not part of the, the mainstream. Um, just sitting there, I realized, you know, here's a woman who has a voice and power as the first lady. You know, it's, it's a, a very undefined position in many ways, but she knows when she speaks, people will listen. And she realized, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use it to raise the voices of women around the world. And I think it was the boldest, bravest most important thing she ever did was make the decision to go to that conference to speak. And I took away from that, hey, I've got a voice too. And I can use it. Not as big as hers, you know, not as powerful, but I can go back to my university. I'm on the board. I was the president of the forensic speaking team. And I can like pull together a little bit of money. I can bring people together. I can share these issues. And one of the people I invited to come up was the head of the President's Interagency Council on Women at the White House. And she's like, how did you get all these young people interested in these issues and to all come together? And I said, young people know, like, we're going to be connected very soon through technology, but we need to learn about each other. So they want to know about these issues. And she's like, you should come down and work for us. Oh, I can't pay you, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> so, you know, my next call was to my dad. Well, I'm going to go to Washington. <laughs> 
I'm going to work at the White House, um, but I'm not going to get paid. Yeah, at least to start. And I just thought, you know, I'll put graduate school on hold. I was going to go to graduate school. I thought, well, I'll just put it on hold because I didn't, there was no reason I was going to lead to graduate school. I didn't know quite what I wanted to do. But I knew this really spoke to my spirit. Moved down to Washington and never came back. <laughs> never went, you know, never went back to California where I'm from. Um, but, you know, it just stayed. Um, it was it was a bold, crazy decision to do that. And uh, it, was, it was the best decision of all time. You know, six months later, my boss, uh, then at the White House, you know, as the head of the presidency and interagency council, was asked to come to the State Department and build it there, set up the first Global Women's Issues Office, you know, which later became mm-hmm. the Global Ambassador, but it wasn't elevated to that level yet. Um, and she said, you should come with me and we'll figure out how to get you paid there. <laughs> and sure enough, a few months later, Swanee Hunt, ambassador to Austria at the time, walks in. This is 1996 now, walks in and says, I want to plan a regional gathering of women. It's going to be called Vital Voices. And I was in the meeting taking the notes. I mean, there was like two other people who staffed her at the time. And uh, she looks at me and she says, you, you'll be our point person in this office. So I always credit Swanee Hunt (laughs) because Vital Voices started as a one-off conference, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was, that's all it was going to be. And I had a job for six months building this and developing it and doing the follow-on. But then what happened is something pretty magical, which is that women around the world heard about it. They heard that Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright had come together to keep the message of women's leadership and what happened to Beijing alive. And they had done so much work in the United States, and now they wanted to work with women around the world and elevate and sort of credentialize, validate great women leaders who are not household names. Uh, and so that's how it that's how it began. And, and women around the world said, you know, we want vital voices in our community too, you know, which was amazing. But also it meant I kept a job. <laughs> anyway, it but, changed your life. Yeah, it changed my life. It and then you know, I mean, and I've been with it since. And it's interesting because people will often say to me, you know, isn't it time you do something else? And I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, I mean, if I can say to myself on a regular basis, I am challenged, I am passionate, and I'm still curious, like. I'm in the right place, which I am, because I think these issues have really hit their stride. They've become more divisive in some ways, but I think in other ways, people are awake now and they're talking about it. And I think that's the important thing. Huge change. Yeah, huge. huge. So you are talking to and working with women who in many cases have suffered significant trauma, and or hardship. How do you deal with that emotionally? Yeah. You know, I think for me, what I feel like I get to see is the best of humanity because these are people who maybe suffered the trauma themselves, right? So women who have run uh, shelters to uh, support and protect and uplift survivors of human trafficking who were indeed victims of some sort of violence themselves, right? And that's why they do it. One of the things that I've come to realize is doing it helps them heal, right? And that's that's very powerful. I don't know how many of them do it, right? Because they're in it all the time, mm-hmm. you know, seeing this repeat, you know, victimization, seeing, you know, incredible stories of survivors as well, but that's difficult. Honestly, my job is nowhere near as difficult as theirs because what I do is find those great leaders and those champions who are making the world a better place and I get to support them and stand behind them. And so I get to see the best, you know? I mean, 
sadly, I think they see some of the worst, but what they are and what they represent is the best. And I think what we offer is supporting people who support the world, you know, and, and what's better than that? How do you talk? So Victoria, your daughter, yes. is still quite young. She's five? No, four and a half. Four and a half. Four and a half. Almost five. Uh, and your son is two years younger mm-hmm. than his older sister. How do you talk to them about what you do? So my husband and I both travel quite a bit. Um, so we definitely have a village, right, that that helps us. I mean, we have an incredible nanny. We My parents come a lot, more for the emotional support than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also never travel at the same time, or we try very hard not to travel at the same time. My husband actually works on refugee issues. And so we often, it's very easy to describe, you know, some children don't have homes and daddy is going to see those children and help them. With me, often probably the easiest way to describe it is just to say, you know, some girls don't get to go to school the way you get to go to school. I mean, that's probably the extent to what I can say. Mm -hmm. But I think for both of us, I mean, we are really both committed to making the world a better place and we really want to make sure our kids understand that and you know they're very privileged in some ways ways that we weren't even I mean I feel like I grew up privileged but you know I think we want to be really cautious to make sure they know that there's so much need in the world and also that we don't have all the solutions but the solutions are out there Um, and find the people who are doing that and find ways to support them with grace and and real dignity for those people and and humility how do you define success for yourself for myself (laughs) um you know my husband always tells me i'm like a shark it's like if i stop i die you know like always have to have the next project the next you know going 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 he's like why do you make it so difficult anyway uh, for yourself (laughs) um you know, I mean, I think I think it's um, it's just pushing and achieving, right? So it's it's setting goals, growth of the organization, um, new things. I mean, we've got some exciting new projects up our sleeve. Um, that I certainly see success. I think also it's really measured in your team. We had our big staff gathering last night at my house. It was like you know our big end of the year extravaganza. There's, there's, when I see young women who haven't been with the organization very long talk about the values of Vital Voices and the way that, you know, you see different people share the values and the culture and hold them tight and hold each other accountable to me, that's huge success. Um, you know, I mean, I guess feeling also like I'm somehow balancing it all with, with my kids as well. It, it was very funny mother fail moment, working mother fail moment. My daughter's in pre-K and there, you know, you have to bring, somebody has to bring snacks every week. <laughs> and this week I thought, well, that'll be good because I'll definitely be home that week. And so I'll remember to bring the snacks. It's the I cruelest need. thing they do to, to parents, <laughs> yeah. mothers in particular. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, Monday rolls around and I'm, Monday night I come home and my nanny says, you know, Elise, you forgot to bring the snacks. And I was like, <gasps> And my daughter looked at me and she said, no, no, mom, it's okay because there was extras left over from last week. So it's fine, mom. We'll just get them tonight and bring them. And I thought, this is amazing. That is success. I know. It's like my daughter like knows it's not the end of the world, (laughs) even though I think it is, but she knows, you know, so I thought, okay, this is a good, it's a good moment. (laughs) 
So we ask every person who comes on the podcast for their best piece of advice or life hack, or it can be your life mantra. What is yours? Well, my life mantra I learned in Beijing, which is use your power to empower. Uh, Vital Voices just launched a great partnership with Target where we actually have that on a shirt, which is super cool. So now that mantra is being spread. So that's something I believe. And I think you got to really think about that. All of us have power. How do you use that power that you have to empower other people? Even if it's just, you know, the person, you know, at Starbucks when you get your coffee, like how do you give that power away because it will come back to you in a big boomerang way. I mean, truly. I mean, it's a lot about spreading kindness, but, you know, kindness is a very, very powerful thing, right? So I'd say that's that's my piece of advice. Um, I'd say in terms of a life hack, um, you know, I think really being open to, to learning, and we talked about this about feedback, um, you know, I know leadership is a practice. You know, it's not its not a final destination. You don't get there and you're all of a sudden there and you're perfect. You're never going to be that, right? So just, you know, keep trying and know it's a practice. You want to constantly get better and take that feedback so that you can. Yeah. Elise, thank you. Thank you. It's so wonderful to have you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. To learn more about Elise, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. You can also follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.